Well, good morning, church. It's good to be here. This, uh, this has been a great morning of praise already. Um, this morning we continue our series called Worship Wars, which is a conversation about idolatry, about the different places that our hearts are drawn away from God to other gods that really don't add to our lives, they take away, they demand much more than they actually give to us. And so this morning I want to continue that. And over the last few weeks we've talked about the the idol of, of family relationships, about our spouses and kids and, and close friends that can cause uh, those, that can become ultimate to us. We've talked about uh, last week pleasure and how pleasure can take that place and actually demands much more from us than what we expected when we enter in to those places. This morning I want to talk about the God, the idol of greed and uh, materialism, which I think is a big one in our culture. Next week we'll get to a different one, but I want, if you have your uh, wallets or purses with you, see if you can find some paper money. That may be really hard to find these days, right? But if you grab a, a dollar or whatever you've got in you, I want, I want to point out something. I know what you're thinking. The preacher's going to do another offering while, we're, while we've got our money up, right? But that's not what, I, what I'm up to. Uh, there's a phrase that's on each dollar, whether it's a dollar, five dollar, ten dollar, twenty, or maybe you have more than that. I've never seen those. I, I think it's on there. Um, it is a phrase that was added to our money in 1957. That phrase is, in God we trust. In God we trust. And I, I was looking at this this week as I was thinking about this message on money, and I was thinking, is that really true in our lives? Is it true that it's in God we trust? Why have we put this on our paper money? What kind of reminder or forewarning is it supposed to be? For us. Is this actually true? Uh, because the truth is, I've come to depend on the paper variety, the paper this is printed on, sometimes more than the phrase that's written on it. Now, if you were to ask this in a church setting like this, all of us would say, well, God's most important, right? I mean, it's the breath in our lungs He's given to us. We pour out our praise to Him. That's the right answer. But uh, the more I thought about this question this week, the more I wonder if that's really the truth. Where is it that we put our trust? Where is it that we find our security? Is our security found in God and we trust Him to provide everything as the God of abundance? Or has this green paper actually been the place we've begun to put our trust and our security? That's the question I want to talk about today. And so really, that in God we trust line up there, I want to put a question mark on the end of it. And I want you to really struggle with that question today. Is it really God where we put our trust? Uh, now, you'd think that would be an easy question to answer, right? Is God on the throne of our hearts, or is it, is it security? Is it, is it the money that we have? But it's actually a much harder question to answer than you would imagine. Give your Bibles open with me, if you would, to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 20 is where I want to begin reading. I want to remind us of the Ten Commandments. If you remember the story of the Exodus, the story of God's people being released from bondage. They've been in slavery in Egypt for over 400 years, and God frees them. He, he brings plagues on the people of of, of Egypt, and he finally frees his people through the Red Sea, and God saves them from something. He saves them from slavery, but it's important to remember that he saves them for something as well. That's something we've forgotten in our lives sometimes. Is we know what we're saved from. We know what we're against. We know that sin is something that is a challenge for each one of us, but God saves us for things as well. For the people of Israel, it was uh, being saved for the promised land. It was being saved for uh, this land that they were going to get to inhabit and rule over. And as they're on their way, they end up at Mount Sinai. And on Mount Sinai, God gives these Ten Commandments. Maybe you've seen the movie before, right, where Charlton Heston goes up on that mountain and he receives these 
tablets of stone with the commands of God written on them. I want to remind you, uh, we've already read this passage in this series, but it's a core part of this uh, series on idolatry and worship. This is in uh, Exodus 20, verse 3, the first, first command. You shall have no other gods before me. That's a pretty clear command, right? And then we get to number two. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in the heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. So the first command is about other gods. You're to have no other gods. The second is don't create anything that's to be an image that you worship and substitute for God. And a few chapters later in Exodus 24, Moses comes down from the mountain and he comes and he, he, uh, he shares these commands with the people of Israel. He says, are you willing to obey these commands? And he's named more than the 10. There's more. There's not all 613 developed and said probably in that moment in the Old Testament, but there's a a whole host of commands he's given, and their response is, we will obey everything the Lord has said. We will keep all of his commandments. That's a daunting thing to say that, isn't it? It's what we say in our baptism is a daunting thing, isn't it? It's we say that Jesus is Lord and we're making him the Lord of our life. Sometimes we don't know what that means fully. And I, I wonder if, Egypt, if Israel knows fully what they mean when they commit to these words. But they, they say that, and then we wind up a few chapters later, and it seems like they've forgotten even the first two commands they were given. This is in Exodus 32. I want to read from this story that you may remember if you've seen the movie as well, but it's the story about the golden calf. Moses has gone up on the mountain with God again, and the people are growing impatient. He's been gone for a while. This is what it says in Exodus 32, verse 1 and following. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel who brought you up out of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. And afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. This seems a little problematic, doesn't it, after the words that they've committed to follow with God? Just a few chapters before, they said, we'll do everything the Lord has said, but in Exodus 32, it seems they're breaking even the first two commandments. They're worshiping other gods, it seems, and have made this image of a calf. And in the end, Moses ends up coming down off the mountain. Maybe you remember this scene as well, and he's not happy because he's heard the the sound uh, in the camp. And so this is what we read later in the chapter, Moses' response, Exodus 32, beginning in verse 19. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, His anger burned, and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire. And then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. Wow. Uh, He said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt. We don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. And they gave me the gold and I threw it into the fire and 
<laughs> out came this calf. It's one of my favorite lines in Scripture, right? It's like, magic, throw, throw all the gold earrings in, and here comes this calf. Sounds like something my kids would say in their own defense, right? And it seems like an obvious case of idolatry, doesn't it? It seems like they shouldn't know. They said they would keep all of God's commands. And here in chapter 32, just a few chapters later, they've broken it. They, but it's interesting, a detail in verse 5 that I hadn't noticed until recently. I want, you, I want to go back and read this again, Exodus 32, verse 5. Listen closely. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. That's an interesting phrase because that capitalized, it's all in, in in, in uh, capitals there, denotes, we're talking about the Yahweh, the name of God. We're going to throw a festival to Yahweh with this calf. In other words, in some strange way, Aaron believes that as he's fashioned this calf, there's something that they're still doing to worship God in the midst of this. They're throwing a festival to Yahweh while worshiping an idol, which causes me to wonder, has there ever been a moment where I thought I was worshiping Yahweh and I was actually worshiping an idol in the process? Probably a whole new set of questions. Well, that may have happened to the Israelites, but fortunately that would never happen today, right? Or, or would it? 2008, there was this great recession, biggest recession since the Great Depression. And it revealed a lot of our idols uh, in those years because a lot of us had been putting a lot of money away in 401ks and day by day we saw it dwindling. And all of a sudden that fear, maybe anger, maybe uh, concern about the future began to well up. And those are the moments you kind of get tested and realize through your anxiety what's most important to you. Well, it's interesting, there were a group of Christians that gathered in New York. So they need to pray over the economy, which sounds like a good idea until you see where they decided to gather to pray. This is the picture that was taken on October 29, 2008, near Wall Street, lower downtown Manhattan. Which seems a little ironic, doesn't it? Seems like a scene right out of Exodus 32. And I'm sure the hearts of these people were genuine. They thought they were praying their prayers to the Lord, to Yahweh, but in the midst of it, you have to wonder... These people praying to God, or is this about something else? You see, greed is a subtle force in our lives. And recognizing the greed in our lives can lead in one of two directions. And Jesus tells two stories that I want to point out today in the Gospel of Luke. Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 18. And in chapters 18 and 19, he tells two different stories about the responses to this subtle idol of greed in our lives and how we respond to it. Very different responses. The first of those responses is in Luke 18, beginning in verse 1. It's a, a story about a guy that's been referred to as the rich young ruler. And listen to these words. Listen to this story about this ruler. Luke 18, beginning in uh, verse 18, I'm sorry. A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You, you know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother. All these I've kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is 
for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? And Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, we've left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. So what do we know about this guy, the rich young ruler? Well, he's a ruler. Uh, He's wealthy. He seems like a good religious guy, right? When he asks this question, what's his interest? His number one question is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds by saying, well, have you kept the commandments? Honor your father and mother. Don't steal. No adultery. How are you doing with those? I've kept all those since I was a boy. It's as if Jesus is trotting out Exodus 20 all over again. He's putting these commandments before this rich young ruler. The problem is he didn't start with commandment one, did he? He starts with those commands about one another's. And he seems to be doing good on those. The problem is that first command was something that he seemed to struggle with. You shall have no other gods before me. And so Jesus asks him, knowing what that idol is, what that place is in his life that is a struggle to turn over to God, he asks him that question, would you, would you be willing to do this? Would you be willing to sell everything you have? And give it to the poor? Then, after you do that, you can follow me. And, and we find out what the man's idol is as he walks away sad. The, the text says the rich ruler became very sad because he was very wealthy. You see, the rich ruler wanted to inherit a life with God. He just wanted to hang on to all that he had in this life as well. He wanted all the gifts of God, eternal life, and an abundant life, at least abundant in his resource. And he couldn't have both. So he walks away from Jesus. But in the chapter that follows, in chapter 19, we read a story about a different rich ruler. It's a guy named Zacchaeus you may have heard about. Luke 19, verse 1, hear these words. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And all the people saw this and began to mutter, He is gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. What do we know about Zacchaeus? We know he's a wee little man, right? We know he's, he's... Wealthy. The reason we know he's wealthy is because of well, he's at least got power. He's this chief tax collector. In fact, the same rule, the, the same word in Greek for ruler that's talking about the rich ruler is the same word that's used for chief when it comes to the, this tax collector. He's a ruler as a tax collector. He's hated by the Israelites. Zacchaeus climbs this tree because he couldn't see, and Jesus seeks him out and he says, I'm going to your house today. And the religious people begin to murmur and say, Why is he going to this tax collector's house? And Zacchaeus, do you see his response? Here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay them back four times 
Now, the first five books of the Old Testament, Zacchaeus seems to know, but he goes above and beyond what they ask of him because it would have been 20% that would have been the overage he should have given back to those he'd stolen from. But instead, he pays back four times, about 300% interest. Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. It's interesting, Zacchaeus doesn't come saying, what do I need to be saved? That's not the question. But what he ends up with is the very thing the rich ruler wanted in the first place. Salvation has come to this house. There's some things that are similar between these stories, right? You've got two guys that are rich. You've got two guys that are, that are rulers. You've got both that have idols in their lives. The rich young ruler's idol is obvious when he won't give it up on behalf of what Jesus asks. And we know Zacchaeus is idle because he's a tax collector. And why would anyone become a tax collector? A tax collector was the equivalent of a Jewish person helping out the Nazis in, during World War II. It was a, a sense of betrayal that he was giving to everyone for his own gain. The only way you would do that is for the money. But there are some major differences between these two men. The rich young ruler would have been popular, wouldn't he have? Wealthy, he's a ruler, he's moral. He's trying to find out how to follow God, a popular guy. But Zacchaeus wasn't exactly the most popular. He was despised. The rich young ruler was righteous and Zacchaeus would have been seen as unclean or unrighteous because of his collusion with the Roman Empire. The rich young ruler also was different because he left with his riches, but he left unjustified before God. And and Zacchaeus leaves with joy in his heart, with salvation in his home because he was willing to give up this idol that was a part of his. See, many of us think that money will make us happy. We believe that things will make us happy. But the stories of the rich young ruler and Zacchaeus reveal that you can have riches without Jesus and walk away very sad. And you can give up so much of your riches and have Jesus and walk away with joy in a whole new way with a new life. And these stories, they illustrate something that Jesus said in one of his most famous sermons. It's in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. This is is what he says. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, some translations will say it differently. They'll say, you cannot serve both God and mammon. Maybe some of you memorized that passage, right? It's as if Jesus gives a proper name to the power behind money. Think about this, right? There's no other power behind something. It's not like someone wants the power behind, you know, like anger, God names Frederick. That doesn't happen, right? He doesn't name the power behind sexual sin, Sally. He names the power behind money, mammon. It's as if he gives this personification of money to say there's something powerful at work here. And he doesn't say you should not serve both God and money. He says you cannot serve both God and money. And we see that in these two stories, don't we? In the end, they have to choose. It's one or the other. And the struggle is when I look at my own life and I think, if I were forced to make that choice, do I know the choice that I would make? See, money isn't some neutral object. It's not just paper. There's a power to it, a power that can enslave us. And at first, it looks as if money's working for us. We can work interest and it starts to grow. But over time, if you make this your idol, if it becomes everything for you, it's amazing how we start serving at the hands of money. Heard about a survey recently where there's some there was a survey done of, of people who were asked, the question asked was, how much more money could, would you have to make a year for it to be enough? And, and the response was about 40% more than what they were making. 
And the interesting thing was that the average didn't change based on one's salary. It stayed consistent across from those that had $20,000 a year and those who had $300,000 a year. The average pretty much stayed consistently the same, just 40% more. See, greed isn't just in one tax bracket. Greed goes across and cuts across all of them. And the crazy thing is we all think that. If we could just have a little bit more, then maybe there'd be enough to go around. Which begs the question, who is more content? The man with 12 kids or the man with a million dollars? We know the answer. It's the man with 12 kids because he doesn't want any more, right? Greed is the subtle force in our lives. It's a dangerous thing. And greed isn't just a sin for the wealthy, as I said. It's a sin, and it cuts across all, and it will steal your soul. It is an idol. In fact, two different times in Scripture, Paul refers to greed and calls it an idol. It wasn't hard to come up with this idol for the series. Ephesians uh, chapter 5 is a place that he does that first. Ephesians 5, verse 5, he just calls it out. It says, for, for of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. A little bit later, Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Listen to these words. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. And we all know this, don't we? We didn't come in today thinking, well, I can hold on to greed in God. That's the trade we make. It's subtle, isn't it? The question is not if greed is wrong. The question is, how do I know if I'm greedy? I've been in ministry a little while. Not quite as long as Keith Maloney's been in ministry. But I've been in enough to have some people come and confess some sins to me. Happens when you're in ministry from time to time. I'll tell you, almost every single sin, I've probably had someone come and say, this is something I'm struggling with. But never once in ministry, Has anyone come to me and said, you know, my sin is greed. No one thinks they're greedy. Greed hides itself from its victim. Jesus says it this way in Luke 12, verse 15. He says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Notice Jesus doesn't say, hey, be careful not to commit adultery, right? Because no one's in the midst of adultery thinking, I wonder if I'm in trouble here, right? But greed's a different force. Greed's one of those forces that you stand there and, and you think everything's good and so many of us walk into church every Sunday and we don't realize how much this has its claws in us. But the cool thing about church that we sometimes forget is we have spiritual practices that combat these things in our lives. Every week we come together and we share a word from Scripture to remind us of our story. Every week we come together, we share in the Lord's table, which we're about to do, and, and, and we share in bread and cup to remind us of who we are. But there's another thing we do every Sunday that we almost apologize for. Have you noticed this? It's the offering. If you're a guest here, we just want you to know we say every week, you know, like, you don't have to give. And we want you to feel that way. We don't want you to feel pressured in some way to give to something you're not ready to give to. But this offering, what it is, is it's a spiritual practice that moves us away from greed, doesn't it? Generosity does that. When we, when we take this money and we put it in a plate, what it does is it breaks a power that's at work that Jesus is calling out and saying, you can't do both. It's going to be one 
or it's going to be the other. So every time you give to that compassion child that you sponsor, you're unlocking that power and saying, greed, you don't have a hand. Every time you give each week when we give you this opportunity, you, you give and you're breaking that power again to say this is what will give you security and control. So maybe this morning is one of those mornings where you're feeling like, yeah, this might be the one. I wouldn't know how to confess. I wouldn't know how to know it. But I sure know I struggle to sleep at night sometimes because I just don't know if there's going to be enough at the end of the month. And some of you got more than enough at the end of the month. But it's never enough. So this morning as we come to the table of the Lord, it's not another offering to give. You'll have another one next week. But we do come to remind ourselves who is the Lord of our lives. The one who sacrificed himself on a cross. The one who commanded the rich man to either take one way or the other. You cannot serve both God and money. It's an option. So this practice that we're about to engage in as we surround ourselves at the table is a reminder to lay our lives down to do as Jesus did. He told his disciples, I want you to go out without a purse or bag or sandals. Just go out and trust that those who you come in contact with will feed you. Eat what's set before you. This morning, let's eat what's been set before us. Let's eat this meal that reminds us that we're a forgiven people, that we are called to be a people of generosity, that we are called away from every single idol that would call itself to give us control and realize none of those things can. Let's uh, eat together. Let's, let's pray right now. God, we, we thank you so much for, uh, for what you do in our lives, for the ways that you, you call us forward to faithfulness, for these stories of Zacchaeus and the rich young ruler. God, they remind us of two different responses we have. God, uh, thank you for the reminder each week as we come here that we can give, that we can break that power, God, of greed in our lives. God, I pray for those right now that are really struggling to get by. They don't know even the next few days how there will be enough, perhaps. Think of the kids in our schools that our kids go to school with, God, that are depending on that lunch because it may be the only meal they have. And there are people in the midst of those situations, God, that, that need your help. God, I pray that we would be the people who would step up to respond. And God, there's some of us that have more than enough. We're grateful, God. We, we give out of joy seeking to unlock uh, the true life that's found in you. God, I pray right now that this meal would orient us again to the story we're a part of, that we would follow the way of Jesus, we would heed his commands. God, we trust this story. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.